We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. The season of Lent began 32 days ago on Ash Wednesday, February the 17th. Now, so many of us have been practicing seriously certain Lenten disciplines. Scripture reading, a disciplined approach to Scripture reading, a disciplined commitment to prayer, to fasting, simplifying our lifestyles. And and I'm sure that some of you are like me. I'm tired of it. it. About this point into it, the novelty wears off and it begins to feel burdensome. And that's appropriate because Lent is set up to force you and I into self-crucifixion. To get to this point where it does become a burden, it does become a daily cross-bearing exercise. A voluntary way of responding to what Jesus said in Luke 9. We looked at this several weeks ago. If any man would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his own instrument of death daily and follow me. 32 days ago. So this is the fifth Sunday of Lent. And then next Sunday, and then the Sunday after that, and then it's over. There's two more Sundays and then a week of Lent. Now, look at it this way. It's very important to understand that Lent has two parts. The first half of Lent, the church invites us to concentrate on ourselves, on our own flesh, our own sin, our own evil passions, and to really dive deeply into repentance. But last Sunday, we shifted, we turned a corner, and starting from last Sunday, we enter into the second half of Lent, the part where we began to shift our focus away from ourselves into the cross. And we began to see that our journey into ourselves is actually a journey out of ourselves. It's this incredible paradoxical movement of Christianity. It's the journey in that leads us out. It's the journey into our own darkness, our own wickedness, our own evil, so that we can then be purified to immerse ourselves in the cross and the resurrection. That's the Lenten journey. It's this journey where we go slowly and carefully and seriously so that the cross can truly become the center of our lives. Now, that's the passage that Chris read to us. It's this invitation to sit with Mary at the feet of Jesus in the shadow of the cross. That's the voice of God to us as a church, as we listen together tonight. You know, for me to be a good preacher, I need you to be good hearers. That's got to happen for this to be good worship. And we've got to listen hard together tonight and hear the voice of God inviting us with Mary, not merely to remember, but to go there with her 
and to sit at the feet of Jesus in the shadow of the cross with her and to hear God himself calling us to immerse ourselves in the mystery of the cross, to participate in this thing that we are so frequent to forget and to take for granted. That's John 12. Look with me at this incredible story from the life of Christ, this weird, extravagant, embarrassing display of love. I love that about um, the painting we looked at at the beginning of the service. You almost feel when you're looking at it like you shouldn't be seeing this. It's right on the edge of a private experience that you feel like you're invading on. That's exactly what's going on in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, any time in scripture you see the word therefore, you need to ask why it's there. Anytime you see this word in scripture, you need to let your eyes immediately stop moving forward and begin moving backward in the passage to find what the referent is. Therefore, in other words, is introducing an effect. Your job at that point is to discover the cause. What is the cause of this effect? Why is Jesus now coming to Bethany? And in the first 44 verses of chapter 11, we discover that Lazarus died. And four days after his death, Jesus raised him from the dead. And then in verses 45 through 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees, these are the various groups that were not just the religious leaders of that Jewish society. They were the leaders. It was theocracy of that society. Because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, notice how it affected them. Verse 47. The chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So skip to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him To death. Verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Therefore, Jesus went to Bethany two miles from Jerusalem. Now, up to this point in the Gospel of John, on two occasions, the religious leaders have tried to murder Jesus on the spot by throwing rocks at him. And twice he eluded them. On several other occasions, he looked at them in the eye and said, you're trying to kill me. And Jesus has deliberately avoided his crucifixion, his murder. But suddenly something has changed so that therefore he walks headlong to the place where he's going to die. Therefore. Because why? Because it was time. Because it was finally time for Jesus to do what he said in John chapter 10, 
just two chapters before this, what he promised he would do to lay down his life for those he loved. Because it was time for that, Jesus came to the vicinity of his death. He came to Bethany. Verse 2. So therefore, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Here we find the word therefore again. In other words, we have another effect. Now, what is the cause of this? Like I said earlier, anytime you read the word therefore, you should stop reading from left to right and start reading from right to left. You should push your eyes back into the story. And what is the cause? Well, this time you don't have to go far. You just go back into verse one. Why did they give a dinner in a feast in honor of Jesus? It's the last phrase of verse one. He raised Lazarus from the dead. If you raised my brother from the dead, I would give you a dinner in your honor, right? It's as simple as that. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and then got out of town because it was provoking a a fervor that was going to lead to his death and it wasn't time yet. But now he comes back and they throw a party. They jump at the opportunity to honor him. Verse 3. Mary, therefore... Took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Look, this is the third time in a row. Now, New Testament was originally written in Greek. And this word, therefore, in Greek is what's called a post positive. It always occurs as the second word in a sentence. This is it's not that way in English. OK, but this is the third sentence in a row. Verse 1 is, an, is only one sentence in Greek. Verse 2 is only one sentence in Greek. And verse 3 is only one sentence in Greek. And all three, the second word is therefore. Mary, therefore. Because it was time, he came to town. Because he came to town and he had raised Lazarus, they threw a party. And then Mary, therefore, took this pound of ointment. Now, why did Mary do this? Well, part of the answer is right there in verse 2. Because Jesus raised her brother from the dead. She couldn't think of anything more fitting. She was overcome with this act of extravagant devotion. Why? Because Jesus brought her brother back from death. But there's more. But Judas. Now, this is one of the moments where if you could read Greek, it's so Incredible, John's artistry. The second word of the fourth sentence is but. Three sentences, therefore, therefore, therefore. And then all of a sudden, but. And all of a sudden in in the Greek, it's like you're jarred. Instead of a natural consequence, you have disjunction. Judas. How does Judas react? But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, John's writing 50 years after the event, puts in parentheses. So you need to catch the depth of the betrayal. A disciple who was about to betray him. Not a Pharisee, not a chief priest. Somebody who's walked with him. Who's received all of his grace. He said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor. 
But because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with me, but you do not always have me. Now there's the rest of the reason Mary extravagantly wasted her possessions on Jesus. Why? See, it takes Judas's accusation to reveal the heart. Two things you need to know. Number one, the ointment. This is a perfume. It's 12 ounces. And it costs a year's wages. This is expensive stuff. Second thing, you have got to understand that a Jewish lady never, ever, ever unbound her hair in public. There was a very famous little teaching ditty that the rabbis would use. And it goes like this. The rabbi describes this woman who had seven sons who all were elevated to the office of chief priest. They ask her, how did you come to this honor? And the woman's famous answer is, because the rafters of my house have never seen my hair. That's the culture. It's a culture in which a respectable woman keeps her hair covered. So Mary is laying all of her honor at the feet of Jesus. She is taking the most expensive thing she has and the most precious possession of a woman's honor. And she is making that an, an anointing and a towel for the, the most menial part of Jesus's body. His dirty, nasty feet. What an extravagant, audacious act of love. Why? And here's the real kicker. Because Mary knew that when Jesus raised her brother from the dead, he signed his death warrant. She was the only one who knew it. The thick-headed disciples had been told time and time again, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And Mary knew that when he chose to raise her brother from the dead, he consciously chose his death. And furthermore, she knew that when he came back into town, he walked straight into the teeth of it. So why did this woman... Do such a shameful, extravagant thing because her heart was overflowing with love. It was the love of a woman who understood this man just traded his life for my brother's life. She was so overwhelmed by that. Go back to Luke chapter 11, verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, which is Mary, and Lazarus. And so Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and only she knows it's in the shadow of the cross. 
And so she wastes her money, her honor, everything in this extravagant, inefficient, wasteful, foolish act of devotion. And like Jesus said in verse 7, not only was she displaying her act of love, only Mary knew this was the only anointing his body would get for burial. Those of you who read the rest of the story, he was never again anointed. Right after he died, they couldn't do it at his crucifixion. It was a criminal's crucifixion. And then after he died, some people wanted to do it. And his body wasn't there anymore. This was it. And she knew it. Now, like I said earlier, in this second half of Lent, our job is to sit with Mary in the shadow of the cross. And as we listen to the voice of God, our church tonight, we are being called by God to immerse ourselves like Mary had done in the mystery of the cross. Now, after all, aren't we just like Mary? Isn't his love for us, wasn't that the signing of his own death warrant? Last week, Luke 15, we looked at this incredible progression of one out of a hundred sheep, one out of ten coins, one out of two sons being lost. And we saw at the end of it, this father who shamed himself to run out and meet this shameful reprobate of a younger brother. And then again, at the end of the story, shamed himself again to, to get on his knees and to beg the older son to come into the party. Do you realize that there are two levels going on in that story? On the one hand, Jesus is telling a story about a father who shames himself, pays a high price to be reconciled to his sons. But do you realize that on another level, in that same passage, Jesus was telling you and me the price he was paying to sit at the table with those sinners would be far greater than shame. It would be his own death. And it is the price he pays for you and me to come home. See, Mary knew that his death warrant was the price, not just for her brother, but for her. And as we immerse ourselves over the next few weeks in the mystery of the cross, that must grip our soul. That that is the price for you and me to be here tonight. The cross is the price that God had to pay for us to sing these songs and to pray these prayers and to have this life. Our life, our resurrection from the dead, it is a gift from Jesus at the price of his own life. How then can we offer Jesus an extravagant, act of love and devotion like Mary did. First of all, as a church, as all things new, we need to offer God an extravagant act of love and devotion. For signing his death warrant in order to bring us home and raise us from the dead. 
How can we do that? The most fundamental way any church sits at the feet of Christ in the shadow of the cross is in worship. Weekly corporate worship. When we gather here on Sunday nights, do you realize what we are doing is we are anointing the feet of Jesus with our praises. That's what we're doing. That's what Robert and Havla and Lauren and Matt just led us to do. They just led us to anoint his feet with our praises, with, with hearts overflowing in love and gratitude and praise. We shamelessly adore Jesus. This week, as you immerse yourself in the mystery of the cross, as you look at Mary and you sit with her, I hope you see a woman immersed in splendor. She is immersed in the splendor of God's love for her and for her brother. When when we see Mary wasting her money and her honor, it is a sharp rebuke to our contemporary habit of being so nonchalant about our praises and our creator. If we were really at the feet of Christ, immersed in the splendor of his love, then like Charles Wesley wrote so incredibly, we would find ourselves lost in wonder, love, and praise. Now, why am I describing our worship together as wasteful, extravagant? Because of this, corporate worship does not accomplish Anything. Not anything. Not anything in terms that our society will accept. The purpose of a church gathered for worship is not to attract people. It is not to build our numbers. Now, of course, if we worship well, people will be attracted. But if we make our appealingness the focus of our worship, then the church will no longer have God as the focus of its worship and worship becomes idolatry. Worship is idolatry unless it is a total waste of time in earthly terms. If we're achieving anything else out of this as our focus, we've turned this thing into an idol. This extravagant amount of time that we spend on the last evening before a week. This waste of time in singing and praying and listening and confessing and eating. It is for one reason. Because God deserves it. That's the only justification for Mary's waste of a year's income. Because Jesus deserved it. And you know what else? What, what we're doing here tonight, it's not even good for earning points with God. What, what, if, if you worship with all of your heart tonight, it won't make God love you one whit more. You know why? Because he already loves you infinitely. 
He already accepts you infinitely. How can you do anything tonight to improve on his love for you? How can you increase the measure of a boundless, wondrous, infinite love and acceptance and devotion? How did what Mary did increase the love of, of, of Jesus for her that had already established the fact it would, he would die for her? It didn't. It didn't increase her love. We're not increasing. We're not getting points with God. That's not our end game. That's not our, our only motivation is Mary's motivation. He deserves it. He deserves this waste. He deserves this thing that we're doing. Worship is a royal waste of time. So why do we waste our time here tonight and every Sunday night? Because worship puts us in our place at God's feet. But you know what? When I waste my time worshiping God, it spirals into a passion for living for God's glory. I'm not saying that's not there. I'm just saying if you mess up and if you make the, a result, the focus, you slip into idolatry. I, it is there. But worshiping God must be about worshiping God. I, I'm not talking about a revival service where our goal is to see non-Christians become Christians. I'm talking about real worship. Real worship is totally irrelevant to this world. Real worship is completely inefficient. And it is not always powerful. It is not always spectacular. It is not productive. And many times it is not even satisfying. But it is our only hope for changing Birmingham. It's our only hope. And it will change us. It will deeply form us into little Jesuses. Filled with his love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. When a church takes worshiping God seriously week after week after week. When the church sits week after week wasting its time. At the feet of Jesus, in the shadow of the cross. That is our way of responding like Mary responded. Now, that's us as a group. Robert and I put so many hours into this. Every, it is totally out of proportion to this moment. So many of you, you're giving tithe and offering to pay me and Robert so that we don't have other jobs, so that we can work hard at this moment. Totally out of proportion. Doesn't make sense to the world. That's us as a corporate body. But what about you and me personally? How can we personally immerse ourselves in the mystery of the cross and more deeply realize that Jesus' love for us is offered at the price of his own death. How can we respond to that personally? There are lots of ways. But let me say to you the most challenging way for all things new. What is the most costly, valuable thing 
in your possession. In this culture, it's your time. We live in a fast-paced society where time is money. So let me challenge you. On a daily basis, waste your time at the feet of Jesus. Every morning, get up or whenever you spend time with God, get up either in the morning or in the evening. You waste your time in prayer and praise and reading scripture. And as you sink into the mystery of the cross and realize that John 11 verse 5 is not all printed in your Bible. It's not only Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but there's so much more. Jesus loved Havilah and Matt and Aubrey and Sarah Coleman. As you immerse yourself deeply into that, as that washes over you, waste your time in an adoration of Christ. What I'm saying to you is look at your daily devotion as a waste of time. Stop looking at it as reading the Bible to get something out of it. Stop looking at it as praying to make things happen. Stop looking at it as a means to an end. Instead, look at it the way Mary looked at that ointment. Look at it not for your own gain, but as a lavish gift in the midst of a culture that says this is the most valuable thing in your possession, right in the face of Satan, hand it to God. By wasting your time in the early morning or later in the day, praising and adoring Christ. Stop doing it on the way. Waste time. Secondly, we need to not only waste our time on a daily basis, we need to waste our time on a weekly basis. Every day you need to waste a disciplined portion of your time at the feet of Christ. And every week you need to waste a whole day. Sunday. An entire day. Now that's foolish. That's extravagant. That is crazy. Like scripture says, stop working for a whole day. Like scripture says, cease producing and accomplishing for a whole day. Why? One, because God commanded it. It is one of the big ten. But just like he commanded you not to murder, not only because it honors him, it's for your own good. He commanded us to give him a whole day. Not just because it honors him, but that's how he made you. It's for your own good. And you know what else? If you follow God. And 6,000 years of tradition of those who follow God in refusing to work and refusing to produce and refusing to accomplish anything one day a week on Sunday, then like Mary, you'll be called a fool. You'll waste. And you'll be accused by your conscience. By those tapes playing in your mind of your mom or dad saying an idle mind is the devil's playhouse. 
Like those tapes playing in your mind of your mom never being able to sit down at night, always doing something, always folding clothes, always cleaning something. You'll, you'll wake up on Sunday and you'll see dishes that can be washed. You'll see a yard that can be cut. You'll see tasks that can be accomplished. And your mind will accuse you of being negligent, inefficient, ineffective. And you'll have Christian friends that accuse you. But as you embrace Sunday as the Lord's day, not your day, the Lord's day. As you give him an entire day. And you only do the things in his great wisdom he told us to do on his day. Then you'll be like Mary. Wasting. Your most valued possession in adoration of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. What are the things he, the only things God told us we can do? Worship, feasting, fellowshipping, and ceasing. Sundays are not for working or producing or accomplishing. Why is it that when one out of ten of the commandments shifted from Saturday to Sunday, we therefore thought it no longer mattered. Look at Sundays as a gift. Look at Sundays as a waste of time, a glorious, lavishing, extravagant, wasteful act of devotion. Don't ask, how can I maximize the hours of this day like you do on Monday through Saturday? But look at Sunday as a royal waste of time. Why? Because Jesus deserves not only your money, he deserves your time. He deserves it. And just like with the church at worship, if you do, it will spiral in your heart into a greater passion for God than you can whip up on your own. So Jesus came so that we would learn how much God loves us. That's why I came to show us, to teach us how much God loves us. And so that we might begin to glow with his love for the father and the son and the spirit and for our neighbor. Christianity. At its heart. Is an apprenticeship in the love of God and the love of our neighbor. And you see, at the end of the day, this is what we see when we look at Mary. At the end of the day, to be a human is to be a lover. That is fundamental biblical anthropology. That is at the heart of what the Bible says it means to be human. It is to love. Now, we're lovers. We, we spend our love on things that are the wrong things. And sometimes we love the right things in the wrong way. But nevertheless, fundamentally, we're lovers. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. And what is God? God is love. Let's follow Mary into the heart of Christianity. Let's sit at the feet of Jesus in the shadow of the cross and extravagantly love Jesus, wasting our time and our resources in irrelevant, pointless, inefficient acts of devotion. Let's pray. Father, we bless you tonight for your word. I can't imagine 
what it must have been like for John 50 years later. He could still remember the smell. He said it filled the whole house. Oh, Father, help us as a church. Help us as a church to sit with Mary and waste ourselves in adoring you. Help us to know, God, that is the most important thing we can do for our city. Amen.